Welcome back to the Revolution in Ideology podcast. I'm Jared. I'm Nick. And uh, we're here with a, uh, a shorty today, a little history lesson, but we're going to dive back into ideology for just a little bit, which is one of the founding like parts of our channel and get away from current events for just a second. Because we were thinking as we were looking at current events about the fragility of democracy or what some perceive to be democracy. We'll have a video coming out soon about is the United States really a democracy or not. Most people understand it's more of a republic and even that is now becoming debatable with 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 corporate personhood and influence and in elections and stuff like that. That's not the episode for this. We just want to talk about the fragility of even just the idea of democracy as an ideology. And we think there's no better place to start than ancient Athens, uh, the place where many Western thinkers believe democracy started. That too is debatable. We would both probably argue it's actually started among indigenous groups around the world um, uh, regarding how they made decisions and their more circular reciprocity-based economies and things along those lines. Again, don't have time to dig into that right this second. Let's just dig right into Athens and kind of, since that's what most of our audience we're willing to bet is familiar with. What do you yep. think, Nick? I mean, I question whether most of our audience is familiar with the intricacies of Athenian democracy, but yes. Okay. Well, we're not going to go super heavy either. We just, again, want to talk about the fragility of the idea of democracy. So let's do that. Um, okay. First and foremost, the idea of democratic voting processes um, start at least, at least in the 7th century BCE. They might have even taken place slightly before that, but we definitely have records of voting processes taking place as early as the 7th century BCE. The problem with that is all of those voting processes, and this actually persists throughout all of Athenian history, but let's get this right on the table and one of the reasons why i would call athens kind of a fake democracy but regardless it has democratic processes you had to be a dude you had to be male okay secondly most of the time you had to be of pure athenian blood meaning both your mother and your father you could track them hereditarily being athenian and then third, you had to have a economic vested stake in the city, i.e. own some form of property, whether that property is large land tracts, slaves, both, whatever it might be. That is how you actually had a, the ability to vote in Athens. The problem with that is that less than half the population has all of those qualifications of Athens, which means less than half the population is voting. By our definition, Nick, is that true democracy? No, definitely not. No. I mean, a pure democracy is every citizen has, actually, I don't even want to say a citizen. Every person in some geographical area has a say in how they are governed. Some of the issues that we see uh, crop up between the 7th and 4th century in Athens includes issues of lack of representation, socioeconomic inequality, resource, uh, a lack of resource distribution or equitable resource distribution, um, massive amounts of debt being accrued both on a city-state as well as an individual level. All of this led to constant bouts of instability. And the reason I mention this is it kind of speaks to the fragility of democracy. Every time Athens dealt with one of these bouts of instability, rather than going through the democratic channels, even as inadequate as we would argue those democratic channels are, representing well, well under half the population, those would even fall flat on their face and they would look every time to a singular hero or leader or what they would call a tyrant to come in and momentarily bail them out. From Draco and his ultra-legalist reforms of 621 to uh, Solon, um, actually a true democratic hero in 594 BCE, to the military leadership of Pisistratus in 561, to Cleisthenes who kind of followed in Solon's uh, uh, footsteps by trying to expand democracy to stabilize things. 
It doesn't matter. Every time they fell into a period of instability, Athenians, again, the Athenian elite, I shall say, always tried to turn to a, a singular individual to basically fix Athens' problems, whatever they might be. What? Why? Why is that a thing? Uh, in a society that posits itself as a beacon of democratic processes around the world and as the origin of democracy, and yet they have a rich history of every few decades looking to a tyrant to basically fix their democracy? Uh, I think there are a few different factors. Uh, one of them is people are just lazy and don't they don't want to have to deal with like the intricacies and the complexities of economic and social systems. They just want one person to come in and make sweeping changes that might lead to changing things. Also, you can think of it uh, in the Greek example of the uh, the Greeks. They actually hated democracy. Most of the wealthy elite and definitely the philosophers of the time contrast to uh, popular belief. And so they very would willingly want someone, one person to be in power so they didn't have to deal with the masses who had some form of political power. Okay. Well, and one of the greatest examples, as we kind of went through that probably too quickly, but the one we want to focus on is um, the rise of Pericles. Pericles rises to prominence after Athens had suffered, uh, quote-unquote, a disaster in its handy loss to the Persians during the Persian Wars. Don't have time to go into the Persian Wars. It's a topic I really love, being Persian myself, and to talk about all of the Western misconceptions of what those wars were about and uh, who actually won them. Regardless, I want to just kind of move forward. Athens lost. And one of the things that Xerxes uh, did was burn Athens. So it was a pretty good excuse for Athens, again, to turn to one um, exceptionally powerful, charismatic, populist leader to try and rebuild the city and essentially, quote unquote, make Athens great again. Not only did Athens lose, but they're not just looking for like to rebuild the city from like a material or architectural standpoint, but even from like a Greek credibility standpoint, because the one city state that was really left standing and became kind of like heroic during those Persian wars was Sparta, which had long been Athens rival. And what we see develop after the Persian Wars is sort of like this weird quasi-cold war between Athens and Sparta, where they're basically competing for, like, to be the greatest city-state in all of Hellas. Not unlike after World War II, the United States and the Soviet Union are also, of course, competing to be the most influential, in this case, nation-state in the world after World War II. Um, and in this, in this, in this, uh, under these auspices, Athens develops um, the Delian League, which is a league of them and the aligned cities, their aligned city-states, either ideologically or economically, and most of the time, those city-states did not necessarily join the Delian League willingly. They did so at, uh, what, spear point? Not gunpoint, but sorry, right. spear point? <laughs> at spear point. Um, same thing happens in the south with Sparta. They form the Peloponnesian League in response, and it is. It's really reminiscent of like the United States and the North Atlantic Treaty Organization with NATO and the USSR with the Warsaw Pact. And of course, uh, many of the members of those were not super into them. And, and even though it's supposed to be equitable organizations, it's really Athens running the show in the Delian League and Sparta running the Peloponnesian League. Um, and essentially what they would do to eat, for each side to justify its acquisition of resources and tributes and taxes from all of these like subordinate city-states, they would fight proxy wars, little proxy wars all around like the Greek peninsula and on the islands and things along those lines, basically using these little proxy wars and these little skirmishes or out outbursts of violence as like 
ways to build up cultures of fear. So look, little city-state that is now subservient to Athens, this is why you need us, because the Spartans are aggressive, and they're going to make you be like them and think like them, and we're here to keep you safe, right? That's why we're going to take your resources or your taxes or whatever. Uh, when in reality, they're not just using it for military hardware, they're also doing it to rebuild Athens itself and to rebuild that Athenian credibility among all of Hellas. So to recreate this Athenian uh, uh, greatness, many Athenians turned to a guy who appealed to populism. Populism of a Greek concept called arete, which is essentially like the fancy Greek word for like individual greatness and your display of greatness and displaying that greatness measured against others. It's where we get the idea of like competition. In fact, the Olympics were founded on this idea of always showing off like your greatness, your mm -hmm. individual achievements. Well, it's, it, and, and Americans can relate very well to this. Um, this very individualistic need to always be comparing oneself to another to justify one's existence, not just their existence, but oftentimes exploitation of others. Mm -hmm. And that's what Pericles was able to appeal to in his leadership. So while he himself, and historians wouldn't necessarily call him a tyrant, he is one of the most influential leaders or archons of the, uh, uh, of the classical era. So his mass appeal to excep exceptionalism would be ordered through various popular culture. It's during Pericles' time that a lot of the ancient Greek myths that we all know and love were, went through like a reworking to basically credit Athens or Athenian blood or uh, Athenian heroes like Theseus would be an obvious one and him, of course, uh, defeating the Minotaur and saving all of Athens from its tributes to the evil, the evil Minoans and things along those lines. Those myths are really products of this classical era. While they're talking about things that happened well before Pericles' era, they're myths that are basically going back and rewriting history to justify Athenian exceptionalism. What do you think of that, Nick? We talk about all the time on this program the importance of who controls the historical narrative and the origin stories of a society and so on. And this is just an example of this individual using his power to manipulate the historical narrative of the society. Right. And so obviously we're funding like a storytelling class to like rework these myths, whether these myths were eventually written down in, in, in classical Greek or whether they were performed in the various theaters that were being constructed as comedies or dramas or tragedies. That was one of the things that became very paramount during this period of time was spreading this idea through narrative. But narrative is not always the best way to spread things. Um, sometimes it's merely monumentality or symbolism. And a lot of the uh, uh, research sources that Athens was extracting under the leadership of Pericles from its subordinate city-states or even defeated other city-states was used to basically rebuild Athens proper in a symbolic way that they could then measure against what Sparta would look like or even the Persian capital Persepolis or Pasagarde, what they would look like. These, this is where we get the reconstruction of, of the Acropolis. And while I'm not going to go through every structure on the Acropolis, I am going to call one out. The Parthenon, arguably the most famous like ancient structure in Western civilization besides maybe the pyramids. Um, it is literally a symbol of propaganda of why Athens is so much better than others. And all of the resources and manpower it took to build that, that's what we forget when we look at the Parthenon. Is it impressive? Yeah. Phidias, the architect, impressive. Love it. Is it beautiful? It is. But we must stress that the only thing reason this thing exists was as a propaganda campaign, and it exists 
on the exploitation of others, whether that is Athenian labor, whether that is slave labor, or whether that is extraction of resources from tributary states. That's how they were able to fund it. In fact, modern historians now posit if we were to like equate everything, all the resources it took to build the Parthenon in today's money, it would have cost $1 billion. Right after losing a war to the Persians, they were able to find $1 billion or the equivalent of $1 billion to rebuild this. Where'd that really come from? I mean, yeah, they're extracting resources from all of the surrounding states. And we can even see it in the symbolism. It is a temple to Athena, the patron goddess of Athens, who is the goddess of war and wisdom. Look at us. We're smart and we'll kick your ass. That's essentially what they're saying. Moreover, what is Athena where or who is Athena holding inside that temple? She's holding a little Nike. And Nike is the goddess of victory, meaning Athens will win. Will win. How do we know, even though that statue is gone, I think the Romans took it and melted it down? Because we actually found, archaeologists have found little like models of the Athena around mm -hmm. the Parthenon, like what that statue would have looked in, like inside, which means people were like touring the Parthenon. Yeah, souvenirs. And getting like souvenirs of like their own cute little Athena that they could bring home with them. What? What? It's like, like Disney. Yeah, exit through the gift shop. I love exit through the gift <laughs> shop. That's so good. That's a super obscure <laughs> reference, but it's good. Anyway, um, but this propaganda is important. So you can take your own little bit of Athena and victory back home with you and uh, 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 revel in your city-state's arete, its greatness. And you are a part of that. You are exceptional. Even though you may not be contributing to any of this, merely being in Athens and feeling like you're a part of it is basically rationalizing um, this reconstructive process and the extraction of resources and exploitation of others. Um, and I think that's, that's often overlooked. The classical era and all of the wonderful philosophers and thinkers and artists and poets that we do revere in Western civilization all are actually byproducts of this exploitation. Why would I say something like that? Why would I say that the sculptors of like the Dory Foros or the Discobulus or these ancient works that we've really come to know and love in Western civilization, why would I pick on them like that, Nick? I mean, it's important for us to understand that the only reason this was possible during this period of Greek history is as a result of this manufactured culture of fear and as a result, exploitation of the like you, the term you use the tributary states right the surrounding areas i mean we argue that this is like a form of imperialism who do you think might be vilified during these various propaganda campaigns whether it's in monumentality whether it's in what we would now call mythology but for them it would be like religion um uh in poetry in comedy in tragedy who do you think most often would be vilified the competing states yes the other fear mm -hmm. of the other became paramount and pericles was able to use this fear of the other building up athenian ex exceptionalism but also in the mythology and even his own speeches his funeral oration is probably his most famous speech that everyone's at least heard of or at least i hope we've heard of um and really all it is is building up athenian exceptionalism and absolutely denigrating all others that are not Athenian. Mm -hmm. What does that sound like? Right. Yeah. I hope our listeners are understanding that oftentimes in our episodes, we use history and intermingle that with current events and give modern examples. Uh, we don't even feel like that's necessary in this case. I hope that you can read between the lines and understand how much of modern times uh, relate to all of these things that we're talking about in the classical Greek period. 
Uh, not coincidentally, based on some recent episodes we've done regarding a certain political ideology, women's roles were also further codified during this classical Greek period to be even worse than they were before, and women were never really treated that well in ancient Greece. Um, again, it's kind of interesting that Westerners, uh, look back on ancient Greece with very, like, rose-colored glasses, but they forget that this is one of the hallmark parts of patriarchal trajectory in Western civilization. And the Greeks were absolutely awful uh, to their women. They were further codified and curtailed uh, throughout most of the ancient Greek city-states. Ironically, one of the groups of women that were actually the the most quote-unquote free in ancient Greece were from Athens' rival, Sparta. Um, Spartan women actually had exponentially more rights and privileges than Athenian women. Um, Athenian women were often considered property and were there just to procreate heirs. In fact, they weren't even there because many of the Athenian men loved them. Athenian men loved whoever they loved. Uh, The Greeks were relatively open-minded in that regard, and we'll give them credit for that there. But the Athenian wives, their sole purpose was to create heirs for the Athenian elite. Um, And that's something we must stress. In fact, Pericles himself loved one of his hetairas more than his wife, Aspasia. Uh, For those that don't know, hetaira is an escort, is an escort. Um, and it's interesting to note that there are like certain, um, rumors, historical rumors that Aspasia used this, uh, Pericles infatuation with her as a way to maybe help influence some political things he was doing. I don't know if that can be corroborated. Uh, I don't pretend to be some sort of ancient Greek expert, um, on, on romance and intrigue and and, and political like meandering, meandering. That's not the word I'm looking for. Mm collusion what's the word i'm looking for anyway it doesn't matter um but yeah aspasia was one of those interesting uh hetairas that actually did some people say use her influence um uh to uh basically get pericles to to do things that that she wanted him to do anyway all right moving on from uh uh, women's roles we want to emphasize uh in this episode the fragility of democracy that's really what this episode is about and we went through uh um Pericles real fast. We went through the exploitation of other city-states, and we talked a little bit about a Cold War. I want to dive back into that just a little bit and how something like a Cold War and propaganda can also like challenge the idea of democratic values. And there was a little mini military industrial complex back in the ancient world, and it centered on the production of one specific vehicle. Do you know what that might be? The ship? Yeah, the trireme. Mm-hmm. So trireme production became one of the vehicles to boast, to, to basically boost economics, right? To force tributes on others because Athens would then, of course, resell these triremes back to its tributary city-states at, of course, a wealthy profit or a massive profit. But here's the thing. How did they justify the continued production of machines of war? Continuous warfare. Continuous warfare. And that's one of the things that I think a lot of people um, um, don't like look at ancient Athens as like this very like militaristic society, but it was. Mm-hmm. Sparta, no one has any like, qual- like that, that's well known. Spartans were a warlike society, but Athens usually gets, uh, they get left off uh, the hook for that. And I think that's what's overlooked. Anyway, all of this peacocking, exploitation of rival city states, proxy wars, um, mass propaganda campaigns, and basically the illusion of democracy and it going away under the leadership of Pericles in certain ways led to an actual war. And that war was the Peloponnesian War that they fought with the Spartans. And um, surprise, surprise, that war lasted for a very long period of time. But Sparta ultimately came out victorious and ushered in the rule of the 40 tyrants. For those that don't know, the rule of the 40 tyrants in, um, in Athens is really the death of democracy there. 
by uh, by all metrics, basically. And it's also important to note that that rule of the tyrants is marked specifically by the death of one of our great like heroes of Western civilization, Socrates. That takes place around this time period as well. So we kind of want to give a little bit of a shout out there. Like basically him being forced to commit suicide for asking too many questions and for challenging authority and all of those things that you're supposed to be able to do in a democracy. The fact that he is forced to kill himself during this period of time is kind of like, that's like this symbolic end to democracy. And it shows just how fragile it actually is. Again, this was meant to be a relatively quick episode, just using Athens as an example to talk about the fragility of democracy and how quickly it can go into something else. A pseudo tyranny, if we wanted to pick on to Pericles that way. What do you think, Nick? Yeah, I think like you said, the whole sort of sentiment in the West is that the Athenians and Athens itself is sort of like this beacon of democracy and was the founders of democracy and like democracy, which everyone had uh, a right to participate in the political uh, milieu. And like, and like, uh, it couldn't be further from the truth. Not only were they not the founders of democracy, um, but also, like you said, democracy was incredibly fragile there. And they went through periods of democracy followed by periods of what we would call maybe dictators. And like that just repeated over and over for centuries until finally Pericles establishes this like pseudo fascism we don't want to call it fascism um check out our episode on fascism for the characteristics of fascism but definitely like uh, dictatorial leadership right and it this way of existing requires many of the things that become hallmarks in modern society from the celebration of individualism and uh, imperialism and constant warfare and this culture of fear and denigrating of the other. Manufacturing and, right? a fake past about exactly. how awesome you are. Yep, exactly. Yeah. All right. That's all we got today. Uh, like I said, hopefully we could take some of these these, these historical lessons from uh, what Westerners think is the foundation of democracy and apply them to the modern era. That's all I got. What do you want? You want to take us out? Yep. Find us on Twitter at Rev and Ideology. If you are listening to just the audio version of this, know that we have a YouTube channel. You can subscribe there and find uh, other videos that we have created, some of them for our classes, some of them uh, on related content. I'm Nick. Jared. Later.